Welcome to a new podcast from Bounce Museums. I'm Michael, the digital creator. You'll hear more from me as well as lots of the people from the Bounce Museums team in future episodes. Episode one is all about the Bard of Bounsley, Ian McMillan. This is an interview that Gemma Geldart recorded with him as part of the Bounsley Archives Joy of Sound and Vision National Lottery Heritage Funded Project. It was a project to make more of Barnsley's film and sound collections available for the first time. You can now watch films on our YouTube page and over on SoundCloud you can hear more interviews like this. So without any further ado, here's over to Gemma. So starting hmm. at the very beginning... Well if you go back to before the beginning, I'm unusual in that my parents, my mum came from Greta which is the next village to Darfield, and her family would have moved up there from Staffordshire when uh, Dern Valley Drift Mine owned. My me, me dad was from Scotland. My dad was from a place called Carnworth in Lanarkshire. And in the war, my mum was drafted into the WAFs and based at a place called RF Blackbrook near Wigan. And my dad was in the Navy and they met as pen pals. So they met in this wonderful romantic way of writing to each other. It was a scheme they had in the Second World War where people in forces could write to each other. So they wrote to each other. And I always talk about that because I think it's, it's, a, it's a big factor in my life and it's a big factor in who I've become because they met in this amazingly romantic way through writing. So they wrote to each other and they kept trying to meet. So they write to each other and then they'd arrange to meet. My dad had landed in Plymouth having been around the world in Navy and they'd arrange to meet for tea at Queen's Hotel in Leeds but just miss each other because of wartime trains. And then they met three times and they got married. And my dad, my dad had... The, the band's ready in this place called Peebles near Edinburgh. My mum's at the WAFs. My dad lands in Plymouth. He sends a telegram to my mother that says, Get leave now. My mum sends a telegram back, Cannot get leave. He don't get this telegram. He sends another one, Get leave now. He gets on a train at Plymouth, starts going up towards Peebles. She panics because all this time, by the way, he's got under his arm, he's got a bolt of Chinese silk <laughs> that he got from Shanghai, which featured so heavily in my childhood. So, he, he sets off, unknown to him, she can't get leave. So she tries to persuade, and she eventually manages to... I always said, how did you persuade him to let you go? And she didn't. She said, Elsie distracted the sergeant, which is a great phrase. So then, my mum nips off a fence at Wigan, gets on train at Wigan Wallgate Station, goes to uh, Peebles, where my dad's waiting, gets off at wrong station at Peebles, because there were three runs up the main street of Peebles, her hat falls off. My dad stood there with his bolt of Chinese silk from Shanghai, which were hoping, they were hoping his sister would make it to a wedding dress, but they weren't time. They get married, they have one night together at Tontine Hotel up Main Street. My dad disappears on secret war work for two years, comes back. My mum goes back to RAF Blackbrook, gets arrested, because, she, because they didn't know where she'd been, arrested for AWOL, two weeks in prison for love, and that was always their story, you know, so that's my beginnings, this story. I almost was a Dida, my dad, because he worked in Sheffield, almost moved. We almost moved, but we never we didn't in the end. But so yes, I was I was encouraged, but at the same time I think people I always was maybe seen as somebody a bit different because I wanted to be a writer. And maybe I, I had a very, very, very specific image of who I would be, and I'd be like sat in an office and I'd have a, a suit on and I'd have a, a pad of paper 
and I'd be writing like that. And then on the shelf, there'd be novels that I'd written, because I was interested in novels. Again, John Steinbeck, he was my hero. And I thought I'd have a book, a shelf of novels with my name. And at the same time, I'm doing daft things and making people laugh. And those two have always been the thing for me. How do you, how do you make the two work together? Thinking about secondary school, Mr. Brown was my big hero at secondary school. This is at Wath Grammar. And he was just a fantastic English teacher. And a lot of writers can point to one teacher who encouraged me. Again, just, you can be a writer, Ian. You have a go. go. He gave me books by Ted Hughes, you know, and said he's, not, he's from not far from here. You know, he was into George Mackay Brown, who's a poet from the Orkney Islands, a poet and novelist, who's never moved from Orkney Islands. And he, Mr. Brown, again, he said, though, you've got to move, you've got to move. But he was the one, so yeah, I wanted to be a writer at that point. I do remember writing Mr. Brown this thing, and I, I was always a show-off, and I put at the end, Ian McMillan, future Nobel Prize for Literature winner. And he said, Nobel Prize winners don't come from Darfield. I thought, well, they can, they can, you know. So, <coughs> so I started writing these poems that were terrible. Oh, God. And, but they were, kind of, because I was a teenager, they were kind of teenage, adolescent, angsty-type poems. They got published in School Magazine, and that's exciting, seeing your name in print. Balakas Hour on editorial committee. But then, you know, I'm not thinking, well, how do you, how do you, how do you get a dad this into a job? How on earth can this be a job? Because you'd read these, on the back of the book, you'd read the flyleaf on the back of the book, and it said, so-and-so went to Oxford, Cambridge, and lives in Surrey. And you think, well, what do I do with them? You're still being encouraged. And you're still going out and doing stuff, but not really getting paid for it. So I went to North Staffs Poly, like I said, and, left there in 1978 and then went to work in a building site in Barnsley, in, in Sheffield, and went to a tennis ball factory in Barnsley. We got married in 1979. And meanwhile, I'm getting the odd thing published and kind of getting paid occasionally. And Yorkshire Arts were the equivalent of the Arts Council England, but they had, Yorkshire Arts was a separate thing, were giving out these grants and they give you up to £1,000 if you gave your job up as a kind of springboard to the freelance. And it's a lot of money now, but it was a lot of money then, 1983 we're talking about now. And so, looking again, endlessly encouraged, my wife said, go on, do it. She was working as a teacher at Goldthorpe. My mum and dad said, do it, do it. If you want to do it, do it. And in those days, actually, there was jobs about. So if, I, if it hadn't worked out, I could have gone back to tennis ball factory. So then I applied for this thousand quid. And it was so exciting. Then I got this letter and he said, we, we're going to give you 800 quid. And that was a funny amount because a thousand pounds feels like a thousand pounds and 800 pounds, 800 pounds. Although it's not that different, but psychologically it's a lot different. But looking at my wife, I said, go on, then get your job up, go on. So I went, okay. So then you go, right, here I am, world, come on, I'm here. And then you go, right, I'm here. And then well, I'm here now and nothing happens. You stand there going, what the hell? Meanwhile, my wife announces she's pregnant. Oh, living at 79 George Street, Darfield. <laughs> so then I started running about saying what should I do I met Ray Hearn do you know Ray Ray's a fantastic fella still about he Gemma knows him he, he did a lot of work for Hear My Voice um, on their Poetry on the Buses thing he's a singer and a poet and at the time he was tutor organiser for the WEA the Workers Education Association and we had this meeting they used to do this thing called Lunchtime Cabaret at Rotherham Arts Centre where they paid you six quid you got a cheque for six quid. So I did one of them and he said, 
I've got this plan, we're going to start a cultural renaissance in South Yorkshire using the power of verse, I said, put me down. So I would then start running writing workshops all over South Yorkshire for the WEA. They used to pay me 15 quid to go, and it was great. Except it meant that I was always on the bus. I ran one at Rawmarsh, then we'd come through to Parkgate on one day, then go to Wumwell, and I'd miss the bus, walk home. And, and <laughs> that was fantastic. And then at the same time, still doing gigs, at the same time, I started writing reviews for the NME. And this was like so long ago, it's before faxes and before internet. So you'd write, I'd write a review, I'd go see a band, <laughs> I'd write a review, then I'd go to Barnsley Station, I'd type the review out, I'd go to Barnsley Station, put it on train, red start of Hassel, and this thing would go down to London, a fellow at St Pancras would meet it on a bike, take it to NME. And it cost, it used to pay me 16 quid for these reviews, and it used to cost me £12.50 to send it, but gradually, you know, it built from there. And, you know, I'd get things published, I'd get interviewed on the radio, I'd keep saying yes. When people ring you up, I still say this to anybody, if people said to me, what, what should I do if I want to do something, be a freelancer? I said, just say yes, because it leads to the most amazing adventures. And sometimes it don't work out, but they'll not ask you again. And so then, it, I got lucky, you know, people asked me to do stuff, and I said yes, and it just developed from there. And then it just never felt like I'd move anywhere else. It just felt like this is the place. This is, I'm kind of fulfilling the things I used to do when me and Shell Lang were scared by that dog with big eyes. You know, I'm kind of making this place fit for myth and just the idea that you can be a writer and you can live around here and you can make a living and you can be on telly and you can do it in a way that doesn't demean the place you're from. You know, I don't want to ever go on telly and take the mickey out of this place. You know, I'm allowed to take the mickey out of a bit because I live here. My dispute with someone like Michael Parkinson, I like Michael Parkinson, but he can take the mickey out of here, but he lives in wherever, you know. And I think you can, so it, it felt from then on, from about the late 80s to now, that you can make a living here and you can always use this as your kind of centre. Because the great thing is that people couldn't care less that you're on telly. They couldn't care less. You know, I've just seen the, I saw the, I saw the on telly yapping. You know, stuff like, that. he's here, that sloppy bugger off telly, don't say out, he'll put it in a poem, and stuff like that. <laughs> so, you know, it's, I don't know, it's, so when you say that I've done well, I have, but um, I couldn't give anybody a formula apart from be enthusiastic. Enthusiasm is a big thing, I think. And I don't, I'm not faking the enthusiasm. I am enthusiastic. And also kind of, you got to like people, I think, in this job, in any job, but I think particularly in a kind of public facing job. And I just like people a lot. I think that, especially people around here, they're just amazing, I think. You know, Barnsley's got this reputation of being a kind of miserable place, but I find them hilarious. Barnsley, what a, what a cultural hotspot it is now. You know, Gemma and Lynn and Sue and all them people have met this place. And, you know, people all over Britain are now jealous of Barnsley. What I want is more people to stay. I want people to get clever, if they want to be clever. They want to go to Oxford, but then come back. You know, please don't go. Come back and help us to regenerate this place. Because like I was saying in the cafe, you know, as I was in Milnes Bridge the other night, which is just an old mill town, and it's got a bit of an edge of a middle class, but not much, and a bit of a kind of, almost a sort of Hebden Bridgey hippie class bohemian class but it's fairly ordinary 
and things are happening there and they're happening all the way up that valley and I think it just takes a bit of a shift in mindset because that's the trouble around here people still think that exciting things happen elsewhere but then again whenever you go I remember going to Britain people go oh no down around here mm. <laughs> whenever you go they always say that but I think they can and they will it's interesting I suppose that you were told that you were told mm. to act to move away yeah, yeah. listening to you said you make it sound so easy or you can't mm. well it won't it's, it's not <laughs> it's never been that difficult to be honest I've never had times when I thought I want to give this up partly because I've always said yes and I've always you know said yeah I can do that uh, perhaps what I'm, I suppose there's a bit of a complex the wrong word but mm. from saying you were one of two who mm-hmm. wasn't from a mining family yes, yes. you saw the videos mm-hmm. and it was you were heading yes. for the pit yeah. um, but then there was this Arts and cultural yes, yeah. education system that yes. doesn't seem to marry. Well, it's partly because I mean the, the the West Riding finished at Ardsley, you know. So this Ardsley wasn't part of the West Riding, so maybe you wouldn't have had that. I wouldn't if I'd have lived four miles down the road. I wouldn't have had that cultural education, and that's the thing, you know. That I thank God for Sir Alec Clegg, and it was based in Wakefield, the West Riding, and it was just an astonishing. Education Authority, that just it was called child centered education, which we seen these days as trendy left wing teaching, but that's what it was. It was just people saying to children, You can do this, you can be creative. So, yeah, I suppose that is a conflict in a way, but it's just the, the good luck of having been brought up in the West Riding, and maybe I wouldn't have had it if I'd have been brought up in the Barnsley town because that wasn't the same. How that manifested itself, I suppose, in a typical day at school. Well, a typical day would be. Uh, We'd get there and we'd sing Hills of the North Rejoice, always one of my favourite hymns. Then Miss Parkin, the teacher, would point out a girl in the class or a boy who was really dressed nicely and say, aren't they dressed nicely? Let's sing about Let's sing a song about their, what they're wearing. You'd sing this song. they said, I'd like you all to close your eyes and I'm going to play something on the record player. And I'd like to just think what that makes you think of. And would it make you think of uh, Zoe's nice dress? Or does it make you think of something else? And then you go and then we'd all pile out of the thing and then you'd go and do maths and you'd be doing some sums and then you'd say, let's write a poem about what we've just done, let's write a poem about these sums and it just felt totally normal, didn't feel odd. And then um, we'd do English and we'd, be, we'd go out of the class and we'd walk down to the river and we'd find a log and we'd bring this log back and we'd put the log there and we'd make stories up about the log. That's a, that was a typical day, you know, every lesson would contain artistic endeavour of some sort. And it, yeah, it was just a, a complete and utter celebration of life. And then of course secondary school was different, you know, Wath, because it was part of Rotherham Authority, not a West Riding school, it wasn't like that at all. And luckily Mr Brown was there because the rest of the teachers were sort of typical grammar teachers who were more interested in we're not really interested in you as a writer, only in the English lesson, you know. And the idea of the whole holistic curriculum that you had at Darfield wasn't happening there. So it was never, and I'm, you know, it, it almost stopped me feeling like an artistic being until Mr. Brown, who I talk about a lot, you know, because he's my hero, actually got me writing again, you know. So, because it's the sort of education that these days would be laughed at or would be seen as, you know, like I said, left-wing, trendy, progressive teaching. And I often think, you know, what would have happened if I'd lived somewhere else? If we had moved to London? Or if we'd moved to Sheffield? Or... Mm. 
got no idea really. You know, it's, it's an interesting what if. I often think about these what ifs. What if I'd done something else? What if I'd had a job? You know, I've never had a job. But this, you know, if I'd have had a career, if I'd have, I could have, you know, I could have been a teacher maybe or something. I don't know, I've just got a job. I've never had a job. And I often think of what that would have been like if I'd have had a, you know, an office job or a job job. Well, I could have written in my spare time, you know, and been a performer in my spare time. And having decided to do it as a living, you end up making compromises because you, you end up doing stuff. I like to do daft, you know, I like, you end up like, when I was putting residence for Barnsley FC, still am, you know, it's like a life period. <laughs> it, you end up doing daft things, like being on telly doing daft things. And you think, well, if, if, if I had to be doing it as a job, you might not have, but then on the other hand, you want to not have done it for the world. You know, see, often you think about these what-ifs. Uh, these terrible, like, terrible, the opposite of fantasies, where they... Because somebody my age, now I'm 61, I might have been kind of almost retiring from this office job that I've been in all my life, you know. Because I did say to my wife, now that I'm 61, I said, look, maybe over the next few years we'll start slowing down a bit towards retirement. And she said to me, retire from what? I said, good point, good point. No, it's not like you've got a job that I didn't enjoy. <laughs> it is interesting, isn't it, to try and tell your story. You must find this when you're asking people this. You know, people's lives are so endlessly, endlessly fascinating. They must often start off by telling you, you'll not be interested in this. And yet, people's tale, that's always been my ambition, you know, to get everybody somehow to tell the story. That's why oral history is such a great part of it. I think that's the other thing that this place does. It kind of nurtures you. It not only kind of, it, it, it always nurtures you. So if, you, if I moved away from here, in one of these what ifs, I'd just be, I won't enjoy it, I don't think. Can't see myself ever moving away from the street I'm on. Me and my wife keeps saying we could perhaps downsize, because the kids have all gone. But then, as my wife says, they grew up here, so the, the garden, and she likes the garden. So I can see myself sitting there like some kind of Papa Macmillan. <laughs> That's that old fella he used to go out to Delhi. Andrew, my son, who is a poet uh, and doing really well. I've got three kids, um, two daughters. My eldest, Kate, she teaches at Goosacre at Thurnska. Uh, my middle one, Elizabeth, she's got her own business making children, making dolls. Uh, and Andrew is a poet. But it's interesting that uh, all three of them were always, we always took them to stuff, but the girls were more into dancing. Girls always went to Miss Craven's dancing school and went dancing. And Andrew was into youth theatre and debating club. He wanted to be a poet, you could tell, you know. But when he first started, he said, should he do it, use a pseudonym. Because he didn't want people to think he got the gig because of me. But in the end, I said, well, no, because a lot of the fun is seeing your name on the thing. A lot of the time, people don't realise that we're father and son. You know, because we look different and he writes very different kind of stuff to me. And, we do often work together because I think that would be a bit much. People would think we were just giving each other the job. But it's just interesting how, you know, what your children end up doing. I've got three grandkids and it'd be interesting to see what happens with them, whether they stay around here or whether they go. I hope they stay. But you can't tell, can you? You want to ask me someone else? I've been rattling on. No, I was just thinking about um, the... Because you were talking about that you were always wanted to be a writer mm. and you got into, like, novels and stuff like yeah, that. And yeah. then... Um, the performance element and the poetry mm -hmm. is, is that were they linked? And, and I think they were. I think 
was that always something in you, being the performer? I think it was. I think I've always been a show off. I've always liked performing. I've always liked making people laugh. It's just some people are like that. My granddaughter Isla, my wife goes, ah, she's an actress. You know, it's like that. Some people are. I don't know where it comes from, really. My dad likes singing, as I say. His auntie, so my dad's mother's sister, was a poet in Scotland in the 19th century. She was called Bella Howardson. And she was, we had this book of hers. And it was, it's not, it's very much Victorian rhyming ballad stuff, but there she was, you know, held up as an example, Aunt Bella. She used to write me down rhyming letters, which he kept. So if it comes to you through that way, then I think that might be part of it. And then just always liked just showing off. You know, I think, as my wife says, you know, I've got the gift of the gap. Which is, I often talk about, is unusual, because a lot of men around here are quite doer. But maybe that's the way my dad, my dad liked to talk. He was a big talker and singer. But there's always been that thing in me between, you know, when I was a lad, I wanted to be a novelist. At the same time, I was performing, doing daft things and writing poems. And somehow I thought that maybe the poems and the performing weren't quite as important as the novelist that I wanted to be. But then it turns out the poems have been the thing. Because I don't think, I've got, I haven't got the intellectual or the kind of physical stamina to write a novel. I know a lot of novelists and they just sit every day and write. So I think I was introduced to poetry partly by my dad singing and going to church as a kid. Went to church twice, twice every Sunday. Um, and it was an old fashioned kind of church at Darfield where they sang the psalms and the hymns. So that rhythm, that English rhythm, has been part of me. It's a very different rhythm to the way people speak when they get out of the church. But those rhythms, I think, are part of me. And then poetry, when I was a kid, in my late teens, it was kind of a trendy thing, you know. A bit like it's becoming these days, poetry's on, every so often it comes and goes. And as a, as a lad, poetry was seen as a kind of trendy, bohemian thing. But performing just something that comes naturally to me. and. It's not that I, don't, I never get nervous or anything. I, perhaps I did when I was younger, perhaps I did, but I don't think I do. So it's always been a thing. And I don't try and alter my voice. People say one of two things about me. They say, he puts that voice on, which isn't true. He doesn't don't talk like that at house, which isn't true. Or, he's gone posh. I say, look, I can't be both at once. I can't be both at once, you know. So, so when they see me on telly, you know, when I'm on telly, he's sounding posh, you ain't sounding posh, man. Or, can't understand the word you're saying. You got that broad. <laughs> Strange. Strange, but no, it's always been, I've always been delighted by just, as you can see, I enjoy talking and I enjoy performing. At junior school, I was always the one who wanted to be in the play. And, and just discovering that actually, just by doing something a little bit wrong, or getting something, making something up, you could make them laugh. And that's like a, seductive disease, really, you know, so. What did your friend, I mean, how would your friends have described you? I think they, were, they thought it was, they thought it was fun, you know, they thought, here's Ian, he's a good laugh, he's, he's kind of destined for someone else, kind of. So that, you know, I've always been encouraging, some people don't like me, that's a fact. You know, people, I can't stand that, you're Macmillan, God almighty, he's rubbish, you get, I, I don't care, you know, I've, but I rub it. I tell this story a lot, and it's true, about this fantastic heckle that I got in Wombwell. And I'm going down the street, and I'm walking down the street, and this car pulls up, and the bloke lies a window down, and he's Macmillan, I'm like, yeah. 
He said, you're on radio? I said, I am that. He said, you're on telly? I said, yes. He said, you write poems? I said, yes. He says, you're shite. And he drove off like, <laughs> I went, oh, God bless the working class. <laughs> See, but I know that. I know that some people can't stand me. And whenever I come on radio, they turn me off. And whenever I come, oh, but I don't mind. That's no what I can do about that, is there? There's nothing I can do. I can't go up to the houses and go, I'm really a nice bloke. I really am nice. I'm nice. I mean, I'm on, I'm on Twitter a lot and I don't get very much abuse, interestingly. I tweet all the time. And because I try and tweet positively, I don't get much abuse. You know, what I do like is when somebody realises who I am and somebody else doesn't, and that's fantastic. It's like, you'd be walking down here, they go, hey, up, hey, up, oh, look, who's that, who's that? And they're going, ooh, well, it's him. It's him, it's him, who's he? It's him, who's he? And they don't know who I am. Like, one of them does, one of them does. I'm right, I don't you know. A lot of people think I'm Ian Clayton. Do you know Ian Clayton? People think I'm him. And Ian Clayton's not like me. Well, we're both short Yorkshire, but he's got a beard, he's got a Wakefield accent, he's got a Featherston accent. And once me and him were stood on Leeds Station, and this older lady came up, she couldn't believe it. Because how can they both be stood at the same place? Because they're both the same man. <laughs> God. Oh, dear. But yeah, I like, I like talking, I like trying to. As I get older, you like trying to filter it through, don't you? And think about, you know, your life. What is your life? Not that I'm old, you know, but I'll still be doing this for years and years. But you think, I'm 61, which is, when I was a kid, that were old. I don't feel old at all, but so you do start to take stock of yourself. I suppose having been here, you've not moved away. Mm. You must have seen a lot of changes in, oh, yeah, in yeah. the town. Yes. So I, mean, I think about that a lot because sometimes incremental changes are hard to spot. If you're going up Doncaster Road towards Kendry and on the right is where the tennis ball factory used to be and on the left there was a pub called the Toby Jug that became a club, didn't it? Because there was the Pinder Oaks that blew up and there was the Toby Jug. And I was saying to a taxi driver the other day, how long is it since Toby Jug? Is it five years? And he's going, no, it's 20 at least 25, you're going, really, 25 years? Think, yeah, it must be. So what I have noticed is that I haven't noticed like incremental changes. But what you do notice is um, that for a long time, the town was kind of booming in a small way when there was a lot of employment at the pit. And so the miners didn't get well paid at all, but after the 73 and, 70, the 73 and 74 strikes, they got better paid, so my father-in-law could afford to go to Jersey for his holidays rather than Cleethorpes. But they weren't well paid, but they got a bit better paid. They could afford a car. And then it felt like it was doing all right, and the money was going up, so the town felt like it was buzzing, at a weekend in particular, and it felt culturally like things were happening, so the Civic was doing all right. And then, after the strike, it just went, just collapsed. And, you know, it didn't know what to do, this place. It just, it couldn't decide whether to look back or look forward. So I always think the miners' strike was like a kind of gong that still reverberated, you know, went boing, and people were still going, what the, you know, we, we haven't recovered, really. We're trying to. Um, and then, gradually, things got better, gradually. Thanks to the council, the council have always tried their hardest, I think. And, you know, the idea of, developing Barnsley. Some of these ideas that might be seen as a bit eccentric, like Barnsley's a Tuscan Hill village and all that, with, what's his name? Will, Will Allsop, 
as jobs started to come back, not good jobs, no, not unionised, not full-time, so places like ASOS and places like Manvers and all the call centres, and gradually jobs come back. They're not the kind of jobs you'd want often. And gradually the place gets more and more culturally confident, so this place and the Cooper and the Civic and all that, so it gets more and more, people won't put people looking at it, it gets more and more confident. So I think I've seen kind of, I've seen it kind of been on the level, then I've seen it go right down to right around 92 and 93, that felt like a terrible time when they just shut Alton Main, shut the last of the pits. What are we gonna do? You, you know, you can't, we can't just disappear. I mean, it can't be like Consit or Corby. Something's got to happen. Then it gradually is. And at the moment, we're having all these changes at Middle of Barnsley, which at last are happening, because those of us who've been around like we all have for a long time think, here we go, please let it happen. And it is, thank goodness. It's always had a vibrant night scene, it's always had a vibrant music scene. But I think people are going to recognise it as an interesting, as an interesting place to come. You know, not just because of gems like Cannon Hall and all that, but just because the town itself will be interesting, I hope. Yeah, one of the things um, I usually ask is, do you feel like, you, do you identify as being from Barnsley or from... I was identify as being from Darfield. I think Darfield first. Um, partly because, you know, you end up saying Barnsley because people haven't heard of Darfield. Although you must find, like I do, that everywhere you go, people have heard of the place you come from. You know, been to your school or been on your street. But yeah, I would mainly identify myself with Darfield rather than Barnsley. And what did it feel like it's its own self-contained? Yeah, it did, very much so. Darfield did, yeah. Because it had its own, until 1974, it had its own urban district council. You know, so it would have had its own council. That's been a lot of fun. Yeah? Oh, God, I enjoyed that. Good. No, I love talking about myself. <laughs> so it's like, we're not people are Thank you for that interview, Gemma. That was actually part of a much longer interview, about two hours. So we might revisit Ian and his memories of Barnsley and Darfield in future episodes. We are going to end this podcast with a poem from Ian. In 2016, Island Corner sadly burnt down. Ian has collected some of your memories in this. Memories Dividend, Memories Rock. The heart of the town, from the corner of your eye. It was always there, and now it's not. The flames burst high in the Barnsley sky. Memories dividend, memories rock. The wedding dress tried on, yes, it fits. The nights when the music never stopped. History broken into tiniest bits of memories dividend, memories rock. Saturday mornings and Tuesday nights, the brand new shirt or the slow-mo hop. One of this town's most iconic sights. Now memories dividend, memories rock. You met your husband, saw your wife across the crowded sale time shop. This was a place to spend your life. Ah, memories dividend, memories rock. Now the building's gone, but the stories stay permanent as the Barnsley scene. Raise your voice now, let's all say, this is memories dividend, memories dream. For more information about us, visit our website, barnsley-museums.com. The music in this podcast is by J-Man at One Music Box, who can be found on YouTube and Patreon. <laughs>